Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. The 1837 and 1838 Lower and Upper Canada rebellions had a massive impact on the history of Canada. And it's likely that while we eventually would have had Confederation, it may not have come at the time that it did if not for these rebellions. Yet, in many places in Canada, people don't know about them. For example, I had no idea and it was not part of my school curriculum out in Alberta when I was growing up in the 90s. A while ago I did do an episode on the rebellions and the Republic of Canada, the Battle of Saint-Eustache and others. And it's a really interesting story, but I'm not an expert. But I did talk to an expert, Dr. Colin Reed, who's actually written about the topic several times. We talked about the rebellions, their impact, what they made of Canada, and why we may not know more about them today. Um, why are the rebellions of 1837-38 not remembered as well as you know, the 1870 uh, Red River Resistance or the 1885 uh, Northwest Rebellion? We learned a lot about those in school, but never really anything about the, the Upper and Lower Canada rebellions. Well, those are very good questions, um, but may I begin by asking, uh, where did you go to school? I, was, I went to school in Alberta. Okay, well, that may in fact be part of it. I speak as someone who's taught in Western Canada, and I was surprised when I was in Western Canada, having come from Eastern Canada, I was very Eastern Canada-centered, that my students at university weren't much interested in the history of Eastern Canada, they were much more <laughs> interested in the history of Western Canada. So I think that might be part of the answer. It's a, it's a regional issue to some extent, I think. And then to uh, another extent, I think it's the fact that um, here in Eastern Canada, at least, the interest in the history of Canada is on the wane, and I think that that's also true across the country. If you look at the enrollments in history departments and the number of faculty teaching Canadian history, they've been quite severe decline for any number of years. So, for instance, just to illustrate that, when I was a, a kid, many, many decades ago, um, <clears throat> the Rebellion of 1837 always got a mention in the newspapers, and there were historical reenactments. That has faded in the last 20 years or so. It doesn't get a mention anymore. So I'm one of the reasons I was willing to do this talk with you was that I find this a matter of great concern that we're in danger of losing a lot of historical memory. I don't know if that answers your question sufficiently, probably not. No, no, absolutely it does. Uh, It kind of leads to the next question. Are the rebellions remembered more in, like, obviously, like you said, it's fading, but are they remembered more in Quebec and Ontario than in the rest of Canada? Well, I, uh, yes, I believe so. And I believe also that the rebellions are probably more remembered now in uh, Quebec than they are in Ontario. So, just for example, 
um, <clears throat> the FLQ, uh, when they issued their manifesto, put on <clears throat> the front of it the outline <clears throat> of a patriot from 1837. Um, and the FLQ also, one of the cells was the Shenye cell. Shenye was a mm-hmm. patriot leader from 37. Um, I don't think you find that sort of thing in Ontario anyway. And it is also the case that if you look at the Maritimes, um, there there weren't, uh, they had much the same kind of political developments, the slow evolution of reform and the progression to responsible government without any uh, armed uprisings. So there's perhaps less reason there to remember the rebellions, as they are, remember, as I suggested, more so in in Quebec. But again, I do think the historical memory is on the wane. I don't think anything's on the upswing here. I know I could be wrong, and I'd like to think that I am, Mm -hmm. but that's the way I see it. I guess, you know, we, excuse me, we probably would have moved eventually to something like Confederation, but would we have had Confederation as it was without these rebellions? Uh, well, that's a bit of a vexed issue. <laughs> my <laughs> own my own uh, view is uh, perhaps, uh, but it's not a certainty. Whereas others who like to see kind of a teleological process, history's moving and unfolding as it should, as it's all preordained to do, uh, see it quite differently. So, for instance, after the rebellions, uh, shortly after the rebellions of '37, the British government uh, sent out Lord Durham to investigate the problems here in Lower Canada and in Upper Canada, present-day Southern Quebec and present-day Southern Ontario. And his report um, did recommend, or he mentioned, the possibility of uh, the ultimate union of the British North American colonies. And he did recommend the uh, union of the two Canadas, which was effected in 1841. But we don't get Confederation until 1867. So that's quite a long time. So, for instance, um, people who argue that, yes, the rebellions were kind of a necessary prelude to Confederation um, would also argue that it was a necessary prelude to the granting of responsible government. But that overlooks the fact that responsible government was granted in in Nova Scotia uh, before it came to the Canadas, and uh, they do not have in Nova Scotia an armed rebellion. So I think it, you have a difficult time saying the rebellions <coughs> were a precondition mm-hmm. of confederation. But I do know that argument exists. Um, when you look at the at the rebellions, especially the Lower Canada Rebellion, the the words responsible government come up a lot. So what yes. was the importance of responsible government to the uh, patriots? Well, um, that's, a, that's a very, again, a very good question. <laughs> I, I would distinguish between the, um, the leadership and the rank and file. The leadership uh, was typically of uh, the avocats, the lawyers, the doctors, and various um, English uh, <clears throat> members of those professions. Um, they tended to be well-educated uh, people who understood uh, the failures of the existing kind of government 
and pointed to the necessity for reform. So, uh, and they were quite um, astute in suggesting that what needed to happen was that the executive council uh, should be responsible to the um, <coughs> legislature. In Upper Canada, that discussion about responsible government was a little more confused. People kept, particularly Mackenzie, the leader of the Upper Canadian Revolt, kept pointing to the um, <coughs> Legislative Council as the place where you needed to have that reform. The uh, ex Executive Council was, was much more important and much more influential. It was really the cabinet of the day. Now, whether these fine distinctions were understood by the rank and file, um, I don't really know. It's certainly the case, though, that modern historians, modern historiography, would place much more emphasis than I did in my own work some years ago on sort of charting the progress of political ideas and how they infiltrated the rank and file. So to say that, you know, the um, people in Lower Canada who took up arms were seized by the idea of we need responsible government is a question that uh, really needs more thought and more investigation. But it is the case that uh, amongst many of the main leaders, uh, they were seized of that notion, and, and rightly so. Uh, kind of leads to my next question. So you have the Lower Canada Rebellion in 1837, and then Upper Canada kind of looks at it and goes, well, let's give this a try. So how did the Lower Canada Rebellion lead to the Upper Canada Rebellion uh, later on, uh, a year later, I guess, or a few months later? Uh, well, yes, it, it breaks out, that Lower Canadian uh, Rebellion actually breaks out a, a month later. Well, there are lots of unanswered questions in history, and, and one of them is, the extent to which the Upper Canadian and Lower Canadian rebels uh, were in cahoots with each other. The Upper Canadian, <clears throat> I, I might add that the Upper Canadians certainly had many of the same grievances that the Lower Canadians did, uh, that is the Lower Canadian reformers did, particularly with respect to the nature of government. So the uh, Upper Canadian radicals um, did send a couple of um, envoys to Lower Canada in the fall of 37. The extent to which those people had any influence uh, remains unknown. It's unfortunately the case that, you know, over time documents get lost and things are destroyed that we would love to know. There, I know of papers that were <clears throat> reported at the time as being a cache of rebel uh, communiques and the like that were buried, but. We're never, we're never found. There's just a report of it. it. Might have been somebody's wild imagination. But my own particular view is that there was very little coordination between the Upper Canadian Rebels and the Lower Canadian Rebels. What really happened was that there was a very serious uprising in Lower Canada, in the southern part of the province, in the eastern townships, in November 37. And the new Lieutenant Governor of, of Upper Canada, Sir Francis Bondhead, who was a, a bit of a um, caricature of himself, when he was asked by the then um, Governor General 
of who exercised authority over both the Canadas and who lived in um, Lower Canada, would he please send whatever troops he could spare to Lower Canada? Uh, head in an example of you know foolish bravery, sent all of the troops <laughs> that he had on hand. So this was seen as a great opportunity by the uh, upper Canadian rebels to move. And also the, the first news they had of the rebellions was that the, the Patriots were overwhelmingly successful and it would be just a matter of marching to have a successful rebellion in Upper Canada. You have to remember that, you know, communications were very poor in this day and age. They didn't have emails, they didn't have the internet, they didn't even have the, the telephone or the radio. We all know that. <clears throat> so, um, but it's worthwhile reminding ourselves of that. So the communications were, were poor and the Upper Canadian Rebellion I feel would never have happened, at least the timing of it would have been quite different, had they known the true state of circumstances in Lower Canada. Uh, kind of what got me onto learning about the rebellions uh, was when I found out about the Republic of Canada, which is, it seemed to me like this really great story that nobody knows about, um, but can you tell me a bit about this, this really brief existence of the Republic of Canada? Are you referring to the declaration that was made in November 38 of the Republic of Canada in Lower Canada? Uh, yeah, and they established uh, on an island just off the on the Niagara River, I believe. Oh, okay. Uh, that's another one. Okay, there were several declarations. <laughs> yeah, that's actually an extremely interesting um, story. That's the um, story of Navy Island. Right. What happened was after the failure of the rebellion uh, in in the Toronto area, the leader of the rebellion, Mackenzie, fled successfully to the United States. And actually, one of the um, <clears throat> one of the interesting things about the rebellions to me is that pretty well the leaders in both areas typically got away, and the people who were punished were secondary leaders or even just rank and file people. But Mackenzie was successful in getting away. And he wasn't giving up. He was like Donald Trump with the election. <laughs> he was going to come back, and he's going to, in this case, invade Canada. <clears throat> Not necessarily invade the White House, but invade Canada. And he was bringing with him American um, supporters who were called hunters. They um, used a lot of uh, Masonic symbols and the like. So there was actually a movement of hunters across the United States in the northern parts. Um, who were dedicated towards uh, invading Canada and turning it into a republic like the United States. Um, so Mackenzie took up a position on Navy Island. He had a significant number of people at his disposal, several hundreds who came with him, and they were intending to invade Upper Canada, but um, the response of the um, loyalists on the other side, that is those loyal to the crown, uh, in Upper Canada was quite strong. They were soon facing uh, a border that was festooned with uh, forces of, uh, against them. So uh, that whole thing uh, fell through. The Navy Island escapade lasted about a month. But one of the most interesting episodes of the entire 1837-38 um, brouhaha occurred when... Um, some of the loyalists on the other side decided that they would 
go over to the American side and <coughs> stop the provisioning of the force on Navy Island by uh, cutting out the ship, the Caroline, that was supplying them. So they went over at night and came across the came across the Niagara River uh, as secretly as they could, uh, found the ship where at, it, at its harbor, uh, cu- cut it out, <laughs> but in the process managing to kill an American on American soil, and then they sh- set the ship adrift, and it <clears throat> came across the top of the, uh, the falls. Pictures of the day had it plunging over the falls and being destroyed, but it really grounded above the falls and broke up successively over the years. But this created an international uh, brouhaha about whether or not it was okay for Canadians to come onto American soil and kill an American citizen and wreck American property. Uh, So it was really a a heated issue. And in fact, it had legal repercussions for over a century about whether or not the doctrine of hot pursuit of the enemy uh, could be justified in the case of the Caroline and other such incidents. Uh, yeah, that, that that's exactly what I was uh, referring to. I always enjoyed mm-hmm. that story. Um, so the rebellions, uh, I guess, in one sense they they fail. In another another sense, they they help kind of bring about the the province of Canada, eventual responsible government. But kind of initially, why why do these rebellions fail and the leaders flee uh, to, like you said, the United States? Um, well, I think in <laughs> that there are a couple of answers to that. The first is that, let me take the Upper Canadian case first. Um, <clears throat> there was an overwhelming uh, response uh, on the part of people who were not rebels to come to the aid of the Crown. As soon as the rebellion broke out and the, the military garrisons were not at hand, the government put out appeals to um, loyal settlers to come to the government's aid. And those people turned out in very large numbers. So I, I do think, as I have argued elsewhere, that while uh, reform was necessary in Upper Canada, and while perhaps many people realized that things needed changing, there weren't that many people. There weren't as um, there were there were more people than there were rebels who felt that the way to achieve change was through peaceful means rather than through violent ones. So it, it was really force majeure in the case of um, Upper Canada that led the uh, rebellions to fail. The Lower Canadian case is a little different in that um, the my reading of it is that rebel sentiment was more widely spread in Lower Canada than in Upper Canada. Hence, it is that the Lower Canadian rebellions were more serious in a variety of ways than the upper Canadian rebellions were. So you had two areas that were inflamed, um, north of Montreal in the Two Mountains area, and then in the uh, area south of the St. Lawrence, particularly along the Richelieu River area. So there we had some really quite um, radical uh, uprisings with considerable numbers of people involved. So what the government in Lower Canada had at its disposal was was they had a a large number of of, uh, troops, 
you know, people who were trained in, in warfare. Mm-hmm. Not only did the uh, lower Canadian uh, officials ask for troops to be sent from uh, Upper Canada, they also asked for them to be sent uh, from the Maritimes. Uh, so they were successful in, in getting a significant force. And also in the 1838 episodes in, in Lower Canada, um, they were also able to get um, loyalist volunteers from Glengarry in Upper Canada. So they had greater uh, force at their disposal than did the Upper Canadian authorities. So they put down the rebellions with some um, hmm, considerable degree of harshness. So it's always a tactic of people in authority to try to crush dissent if given the opportunity by being as violent as possible to spread fear. And so we have several cases um, in in, in Saint-Eustache, north of Montreal in December 1837. The rebels were badly outnumbered. They took uh, refuge in a church, at least those who who were still around at the time had not who were who had not fled, and the um, uh, forces there set fire to the church. And as the rebels uh, tried to escape, they shot them. Uh, so you know that's a significant number of deaths there, and so doubtless that spread fear amongst the uh, lower Canadian rebels in that area who might be disposed to take up arms. So there are other such episodes. The uh, the forces under Sir John Colborne, who were involved in putting down the uh, rebellion of '37, and then uh, acting on the Patriot raids, the Hunters raids, raids they call it various things of '38, uh, also used quite severe tactics with considerable loss of life on the part of the Patriots at the those times. So John Colburn was given the na- nickname Old Firebrand <laughs> because people, the troops under his control, whom he couldn't always control, right? mm-hmm. it's, it's not, not clear that he himself wanted the burning of churches and of villages, but it certainly did happen. So I, I was forced, again, force majeure in, in this case with uh, Lower Canada, but the difference is that they had a, a lot of imperial troops and outside um, <clears throat> um, loyalists supporting outside from outside the province. Uh, this might be kind of a harder question to answer, but we're almost two hundred years later. What what impacts are those rebellions still kind of having on in, on Canada uh, all the way up to today? Well, <laughs> that is a very hard hard question to answer. Um, <clears throat> well, I do think uh, that we do not have a history of successful rebellion. We're not like the states, you know. So in the states, there's this sort of mythology that has grown up about the American Revolution and how the Americans did all these things and individuals rallied to the uh, support of the colonies and they did it on their own and all this notion of you know the uh, um, people had their arms the right of the militia to bear arms and so on and so forth well mm, okay yeah 
to some extent, uh, I can buy into that, but it does ignore the fact that the French were extremely instrumental in the winning of the revolution by the Americans. They didn't do it entirely on their own. That's been largely forgotten. So the myth-making there has been, you know, um, because it reflects well on the Americans, has been really intense. You can't make uh, much in the way of myths out of failed rebellions. Mm -hmm. So the myth-making here has been uh, non-existent, really, with some small exceptions, again, the FLQ, with respect to the rebellions in, uh, in the Canadas. So, but I do think that the lesson that Canadians learned from this, or took away from it, was that if you're to have reform, uh, needed reforms, it's better to do it gradually and peacefully. Uh, so I would think that would be perhaps the major contribution of the rebellions <laughs> to um, Canadian history, albeit a negative one, that, that is, don't follow our example. Now, it would be the case, of course, that <clears throat> there are people who would argue, and it's an argument worth conjuring with, that, and it's in part an argument that I've, I've made myself, that the rebellions, at least in, Upper, in, in the case of the upper Canadian cases, I have argued this at one point, <clears throat> that they certainly drew attention to things that needed reforming. And so uh, they might have been necessary to that reform at that level, that you, you made a case so strongly that officials were disposed to act, if, but if only incrementally and peacefully over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so just my last question is, um, if people have, like, they have questions or they want to get in touch or if you have any uh, books that you're working on or anything like that, uh, you know, kind of uh, how do people reach you or learn about you? <laughs> well, I'm not that interesting a guy. <laughs> I'm not sure that. Um, uh, they, uh, they would want to be uh, getting in touch with me. Uh, if, if they do... Um, easiest way is I'm, I'm a retired, rather long retired professor now uh, from uh, University of Western Ontario, Huron College at University, and I have an email address, cread, C-R-E-A-D, at uwo dot C-A. And am I working on anything else? Yeah, I've been working very, very busily for the last 30 years uh, on a uh, uh, a book, actually threatens to be two books, on land settlement in a particular area of southwestern Ontario in Norfolk County in the period 1792 to 1851. And so I'm, I have a whole bunch of questions that I'm asking myself, <laughs> including the fact is, why did I ever undertake such a massive project that's taken me so long to do? I hope you enjoyed that episode of Canadian History X, and if you did, please leave a rating or review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And again, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful people have, Shannon Marshall... Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, 
Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, and Phil Maynard, along with Spencer M. and Iris Gray. Thanks, we'll see you again next time.